RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. He said, I want to create insurance that helps companies to grow and that shows that insurance capital can be used in the same way, robustly and safely, that other forms of capital can be. And so that was the genesis of Houghton Capital. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, we have Mary O'Connor, and we're going to discuss the insurance of long-term capital risks. Mary started out her career as a lawyer in the US, which included four years in the attorney's office in the District of Columbia. But in 2008, she joined the Financial Services Authority in the UK, where she ended up as head of approved persons and SIF regime. In 2012, though, she moved away from regulation and joined what is now Willis Towers Watson, where she became global head of financial institutions. Six years later, in 2018, she moved to KPMG UK, where she ended up as acting chief executive officer. And then, in April 2022, she became CEO of Howden Capital Advisory and Placement, known as Howden Cap, which aims to use the power of insurance to solve complex and long-term capital risks, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Mary, welcome to the podcast. Uh, well, thank you. It's great to be here at the home of insurance knowledge. <laughs> um, now, you've done legal practice in both the private and the public spheres. You've worked for a regulator and for the regulated as a talk us through your your initial route into insurance, well, when I was at the uh, at the regulator, a friend of mine had become the general counsel of Willis, and he phoned me up and he said, "Listen, we're going through quite a lot of governance and regulatory changes, and we really need somebody who understands the U.S. and the U.K. and I think that you would be great." And so I jumped in and kind of never looked back. Brilliant. And um, our aim for today is to talk about how insurance uh, can solve long-term capital risks. And um, now I have to confess that when I kind of started my research for this, I didn't really have the foggiest idea what that meant. Um, so, I, I, so I've been working out how do we tell the story in a way which, which people can follow. Um, and so my first question is this, who or what is it that needs help with long-term capital risks? Whose long-term capital risks are we talking about? So broadly at Howden Cap, we are looking to help people or companies with long-term capital risks in four categories. First and most importantly are banks. Second, financial institutions, particularly non-bank financial institutions and companies making investment, we're trying to use insurance to help them open up new areas for growth, for instance, if there's political risk, or also to be able to make their investments safe. Third, we help companies that are engaging in transactions to protect themselves against known risks that they might identify in due diligence or unknown risks, or even to lock in things like fiscal benefits that might make their investment more profitable over time. And finally, we work with funds. Funds are looking to return investments back to investors and to be able to optimize their returns over, over a long term. Okay. Okay. So basically, we're talking about entities where money is their business. Is that fair? 
That is it. It's where money is their business or where getting an investment return at a certain level over a certain period is very important to them. I, I guess the next question is, what do we mean about long-term capital risk? What, what, when we talk about a money business having a long-term capital risk, what is it that we mean by that? I think this goes to the heart of the problem. So banks, let's start with them. You know, fundamentally, bank capital models seek to manage two kinds of risk. First, they need to balance things like short-term deposits as against their long-term needs. Second, institutions have to ensure that they don't have too many risky assets, and they have very complicated capital models that they need to follow to be able to do that. For investors, it's a little bit different because they don't have the regulatory framework. Instead, it's more around how they look at investments and how they generate the optimal return. So, for instance, investors looking to uh, invest in new areas like Africa or into uh, the CEE countries might be thinking about political risks, which could impact their payment or their cash flows. They might be thinking about fiscal policy changes. They might think about technologies that are essential to their investment and whether they'll work out over a period of time uh, or even transaction risks, right, from diligence. And finally, for funds, there's, a, I think, a real untapped market around things like market risks, duration, liquidity mismatch. So it's those kind of risks that, that we help them with. Is it simply that kind of capital risk is the possibility that an entity, whatever that entity may be, a financial institution, a bank, an investor, a fund, whoever it may be, an entity loses money from its investments? That's correct. Either they lose money from their investment or the return isn't what they want or need. So, for instance, let's say you make an investment and a loan in a green energy project in Ukraine and there's war. Suddenly the investment, there is no return because it's been taken over maybe by a, a hostile entity. Brilliant. OK, so personalizing it kind of right down to the individual level, if I were to buy shares in something or another, I, I am investing in a company, company A, and the long-term capital risk is that that money just disappears or I don't make the profit on it that I think I ought to be making, whatever. And, and, and it's that risk that we're talking about. Yes, fundamentally. Non-payment and returns. That's what we're looking at. And, uh, and, 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 and putting, putting insurance to one side for the moment, um, so we'll come to insurance and how insurance can help out in a moment, but putting insurance to one side... How do businesses normally protect themselves against long-term capital risk? So a lot of it comes down to the process that invest, that uh, businesses have in making investments. So looking at things like risk assessment, diversification, modeling their projected cash flows against capital requirements, doing a risk analysis. Uh, but I think there's an opportunity to do even more. And one of the things I think that uh, insurance can speak to long term is our different ways of looking at long dated capital. You know, because right now, when companies are doing the standard modeling, they make assumptions, uh, they do things based on what they know or the experiences that they have. But when you look at what the insurance markets have, it's a wealth of experience across many, many companies. And if we could just bring kind of and harness that power into those models, they would be even more powerful. Yeah. So, uh, so, so it's fair to say that these businesses who are investing in other things, they, they protect themselves in the first place by doing absolutely everything they can to make sure the investment is a good investment. Correct. 
and then keeping a review on that investment as time goes by and I don't know, getting out at the right time, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, and they take a wide view of it, right? So they'll have financial models and then at the same time they'll look at their pastel factors, you know, political, economic, social, technological, environmental, and legal risks. And they'll be constantly assessing them versus what the return is that they're getting at any given point in time. Okay. And but I, I'm going to ask a question which is probably phrased badly. But 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 why is it that that non insurance solutions are inadequate? And you know, I, maybe it's better to say that why are they incomplete, or perhaps why is it the businesses would look beyond just the normal risk management processes that they would and should always adopt anyway? But why is it that insurance becomes relevant? I think insurance becomes relevant in three ways. First of all, as a company. Uh, you have imperfect knowledge of the risks that are happening. And many risks, such as things like uh, political and economic, uh, macroeconomic situation are outside of your control. Weather would be another one. And you can't plan for that. So you either have to hold your own capital sufficient to deal with a problem if it should occur and make your own assessment of how likely that is to occur and and, and your internal rate of return on, on holding that money versus insurance. And in many cases, because the likelihood of the risk is very low, but the actual eventuality of that risk happening, if it did happen, is very, very bad. That's where insurance can really respond. And that's the traditional way of doing insurance. The other way of thinking about this kind of insurance, the second way, is as a hedge. Uh, so, for instance, for many of these instruments, uh, you could go out into the open market and you could go to a bank or you could go to a market participant, a fund, and you could do a trade to get a hedge for the, these kind of things. But often insurance capital is more competitive than other types of hedges. And that's particularly true as you move into the long dated cycle. Uh, and the third reason to do it is that it provides certainty and confidence. When investors know that something has been insured, they're more confident about it. Insurance experts who are very good at assessing risk take a second look at it. So the investors, again, know the best data available has been has put into the model. In preparing for this conversation, I looked a little, yeah, obviously it, it coincided, but it was just shortly after the, the, the sort of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And um, yeah, and I'm not going to pretend I understand it. Um, but, but it seemed to me that one of the fundamental problems was that, that many of the customers were tech companies, their deposits were way in excess of, of the insurance scheme, the deposit insurance, uh, which had a limit of, as I understand it, in America of $250,000 per, per depositor. Um, and in fact, I saw one statistic that suggested that 93.9% of SBB's deposits fell outside the insurance scheme. So they were effectively uninsured. Um, compared with 77% for Citibank and 72.5% for HSBC. So an enormous, you know, almost all of the deposits were, were uninsured effectively. Now, that was obviously a government insurance scheme rather than, than a private scheme. But it, it, it seems to me that that is, is a fantastic example of long-term capital risk, where, where you know it, money was invested in SVB. The SVB itself was using the money that had been deposited with it. But, uh, you know, there, there, there were risks that were uninsured, and that's one of the reasons why the bank may have failed, or at least depositors are now out of pocket. Is that an analysis which is even vaguely accurate, Mary, or, or though, what's your take on it all? Uh, 
so, Peter, I think that is a, a really good introduction to some of the ways that insurance, if used effectively and creatively, could support banks. You know, SPV had two problems. So the first one, I think, is, is the one that you've described. So depositor protection. So it is correct that the vast majority of SPV's deposits were uninsured. Uh, and as a result, those depositors uh, became very nervous when they believed that the bank capital was at risk or that the business model uh, was not as robust as they had believed. Now, insurance could have responded to that, I think, in a few ways. Uh, first, it is possible to create deposit insurance as a form of value that you could have provided to these companies. So they could have purchased insurance to cover those deposits, which would have given a greater degree of certainty uh, and comfort, I think, when when the run began and certainly would have increased the amount uh, over 250000 Now, it might not have made it to $400 million or some of the, the really big deposits that I read about, but it definitely would have provided a backstop. Second, I think that there's a possibility working with regulators and government to create insurance schemes that would protect the government really from having to step in in times of failure. We have really great examples here in the UK with things like Pool Re, uh, where the government provides a backstop and support to encourage more terrorism insurance. They're thinking about doing these things in cyber, and you certainly could do it here in the UK where the deposit limit is much lower than it is in the in the US. And I think it would be really beneficial to things like the challenger banks where you know the 85,000 limit might be might be limiting their ability yeah. to get uh, commercial customers. But a second and and I think just as interesting aspect of SVB was the fact that SVB's business model again because they had this wealth of deposits, they created a liquidity mismatch. Ultimately, the core of SVB's problem was a mismatch in liquidity between the short-term deposits they had and their decision to take those deposits over time and put them in much less liquid, albeit very good securities. Again, if SVB had hedged that either in the open market or by getting insurance, they would have had an ability to have had liquidity if and when they needed it. And again, that became part of the issue, right? Depositors were looking and saying, oh my goodness, there's not enough liquidity here. I don't want to be the last person to get my deposit out. But insurance could have helped. Okay, so, so you have the situation, but I'm just thinking, you know, I put money into my bank um, and I expect to be able to get the money out at a moment's notice. And, and, but effectively, what, what you're saying with, with SBB, SBB wasn't in a position to give the money back because they had themselves put the money into things which they couldn't get get out themselves. Yeah, not within the expectations of their models, right? The, you know, the banks obviously have to model and have to hold capital sufficient to have normal... Uh, withdrawals available to customers, but these were exceptional withdrawals. And because it was obvious and uh, and apparent actually to the markets that that SVB had made made these deposits in the illiquid securities, I think that added to the pressure that was on uh, the situation in terms of withdrawal. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you very much. I, un- I think I understand it now. Well, at least I vaguely understand it. So, th- this is probably a good time to talk about. Howden Cap and 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 why why it exists. So, but, but what was it that um, kind of provoked it, uh, and and why? But why is this something that uh, obviously there are insurance responses, um, but and therefore that's why an insurance broker is, is an obvious entity to step in and think about these issues. But but why in particular Howden and why in particular Howden Cap? 
So I ended up at Howden because I was leaving KPMG and I knew that I wanted to go to a growth company. I looked around and investigated the insurance market and I was very interested in Howden. So I cold called David. I didn't know him. David Howden's the CEO. And I just called him up and I said, hi, I'd like a job. <laughs> well, I actually said to him, I think that you're going to need some help with together your business model and maybe some work around or, you know, control framework and your risk profile. And he said, nope, I don't need help on that. I'm good on that. He said, but what I do need is somebody who can pull this together. And this was Howden Cap. And Howden Cap comes from an idea that David has had that the insurance market needs to invest in itself to innovate. David says that between 1994 and today, the non-life insurance market, the PNC market, has only grown four times. But if you look at other financial institutions, particularly non-bank financial institutions since 2008, they have absolutely exploded. And he wants the insurance markets to catch up and surpass them because traditionally we've been the most innovative markets in the world, particularly in London. And there's huge opportunities now using data and the efficiency of capital to be able to do different things. So Cap was his idea. He said, I want to create insurance that helps companies to grow and that shows that insurance capital can be used in the same way, robustly and safely, that other forms of capital can be. And so that was the genesis of Cap. So let's get into the nitty gritty of, of it. But, but, but what specifically are we talking about when we're talking about insurance policies that help companies to grow their business and to protect against long-term capital risk. Yeah. Let me talk to you a little bit about the what and then the how. So the, the what is broadly insurance that covers transaction risks and insurance that supports capital efficiency. So in terms of transaction risks, the key one is W&I insurance, which is warranty and indemnity insurance. And that means that when you're buying a company and they give warranties and indemnities, Inevitably, they will be incomplete and there will be things that you either discover in due diligence or you, more importantly, don't discover in due diligence that you want to make sure that you're protected against. And, and in fact, we, we, did, uh, we did a whole episode on w and insurance with, uh, with Angus Marshall and the, ooh, probably about six months ago now. So, yeah. Uh, we have then sort of innovated from within at the insurance industry uh, to have insurance that covers other kinds of contingent risks. So tax risks, if you have a tax liability and you want to sell your company, you can wrap the uh, likelihood or the eventuality of having to pay a, 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 a tax liability. Uh, political risk is another area. That is the risk of non-payment in the event that there is an appropriation of your asset or a political issue that means that you can't get your uh, investment return. Uh, structured credit. Uh, which is well known, but something that I'll talk about the how. This is one that's really that's really changing, but this is about providing credit risk insurance uh, normally to banks, but could also be to funds. Uh, surety, which operates really like a guarantee or like a letter of credit, but increasingly is being used by banks to optimize capital. Uh, and international trade credit, and and we do local trade credit that helps small companies, but also. Uh, large portfolios of trade credits, uh, particularly for banks, again, to optimize uh, the cash flow returns that come from those. But I think the important thing is also not just that, that these policies exist, because a lot of these have existed uh, for many years. And so 
what we're trying to do at Houghton Cap is is really be value add, really act more like RPC and be advisors to be able to go in and speak to clients and say, we have some ideas around ways that you could use this that would help you. And we have the tools and the people, bankers and lawyers who can look at this and, and support you through this journey. And we work with law firms and others to do that. Uh, we also are working with our market able to expand the scope of the coverage. The biggest problem in our industry right now from the standpoint of long-term capital risks is the fact that our capacity is constrained. And that's because we have to be able to demonstrate that the risks we have are good risks, that we have a deep understanding of them, and to get the insurers uh, to, to work them through their own models so that they can provide that kind of capital. Um, but, but increasingly, we're starting to deliver solutions around much bigger portfolio risks and also what we're calling funded solutions. So we actually have an arranging license in Housing Cap to be able to provide things like synthetic securitization solutions or portfolio solutions that are supported by non-insurance capital, where it makes sense. I've already mentioned the fact that we've done an episode on WNI. I should mention we've also done an episode on, on tax liability with Giles Handley. Um, okay, so they started talking about advisory side of things. And then you mentioned something about synthetic securitization. And at that point, I just think... I, I need to go back to that and ask her what on earth that is. So, so what is synthetic securitization? So traditionally, the credit risk insurance market looked at single loans and a bank would come to us and say, I have a single loan and I'd like to get insurance cover for it. And we would provide it. Uh, now, because of the size of the risk and because of the way the models work, what they're saying is I'd like to bring you a portfolio of loans. And can you please... Uh, help us to be able to get insurance uh, cover for this. Now, you can imagine that is a much more complicated thing to do. Uh, and so as a result, uh, we need people who can look at the loans and really understand what they are so that we can say this is a good credit and we understand the modeling and then we can present it to the insurance market. So so, so the, the, if I get this right, the, the securitization side of it is the bundling up of of loans or liabilities, correct. The, the synthetic element is that it's 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 not a banking mechanism, correct. It's an insurance mechanism, correct. So the move is really towards being able to do portfolios of risk and much bigger uh, risks, maybe than has been done in the past. Okay, and and that's where you need to be. I think as a broker or as an intermediary advisor, we like to think of ourselves. You need to be able to bring both sides a deep understanding of those risks if you want it to happen safely and effectively and in a way that uh, all parties are satisfied. These are risks that will be around for a long time. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, they are long-term capital risks. That, that's, that's what they're there for. Okay, I mean, this is fascinating. So are there risks that are not capable of being insured? I guess we, we should clarify. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of risks that are not capable of being insured. You know, bad risks. <laughs> One of the great things about looking at bank capital models, as you can say, is it's going to be good or bad. Um, so bad risks, things that are too big. Capacity is a real is a real constraint in the market. And things that are not well understood or that are systemic. So those kind of risks are, are very difficult to insure. Uh, the other thing is that there are risks that you probably should never insure, right? And that's, you know, bad risks or risks that are a moral hazard or that would cause systemic harm. And it's one of the things as we as we look at this that, that you need to think about. So deposit insurance, which we just talked about, I think well-designed uh, deposit insurance that supports depositors 
in making good choices about their where to put their funds and make their deposits is a good thing. Whereas potentially what we have now, uh, where you know people feel maybe that no matter what happens, I'll be supported, you know, creates moral hazard. So those are the kind of things I think you need to think about when you're deciding what's insurable or not. Exactly, and I was going to come on to moral hazard because it, it seems to me that this is this this is kind of a, a classic area where where moral hazard might arise and. Kind of just to be clear to people, moral hazard doesn't mean morality. It's got nothing to do with morality. It is all about the fact that the the, the mere existence of insurance causes an insured to change their behaviour. Um, and this seems to me to be one of those classic ones where by providing insurance uh, kind of solutions to banks, money businesses, as I, as I said earlier on, that you sort of give them license to take the risks that they wouldn't take if they were merely going down risk management and the processes. And, and indeed, isn't that part of the point of all of this? So it always seems to me that moral hazard is perceived to be a bad thing, whereas in fact it is that that's the whole point of insurers, isn't it? That you allow insurers to take the risks that they wouldn't otherwise take. I, I, I'm not sure I fully agree with that. The way I look at the kind of insurance is helping uh, companies take measured risks in a way that will give them better returns uh, than if they just did it on their own. And, and that is in two ways. So first, it is because it, it can improve the return cycle for a low likelihood but very devastating risk. And second, because by going through the insurance process and getting the insurance, you're getting a second pair of eyes on your risk and a second assessment of whether or not this is good. And that's particularly important with credit risk, where you know you're basically getting getting a second pair of eyes on the underwriting and is this is this useful? Okay, okay. So so the, 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 so, so the, the the caution is is imposed upon an insured through the insurer. To some extent, that's right. Yes, the the robustness of your modeling. They will question why you've made, uh, you know, these assumptions. So I think, yeah, it's very important to uh, to kind of have that second pair of eyes on some of these on some of these decisions. No, absolutely. And and you have been a regulator in the past. Um, so with your regulator's hat on, are there any alarm bells that are rung by all of this? Yeah, that is a super interesting question because I think traditionally the regulators have. And, and I do support ring fencing, right? The regulators have said we should separate, uh, you know, retail banking and things that are are uh, related to consumers from from other areas of the system. But the issue we've got now with the growth of non-bank financial institutions is that there is actually an awful lot of permeability in the system. I think, and I would encourage the regulators to look at things like insurance and where it can be used safely with well-understood risks and say, you know, how can we do this to, you know, one, increase confidence in the system. Think about SVB. If they had had another layer of deposit insurance, that would have improved people's confidence immensely and reduced the draw on taxpayers, should there be one. You know, second, uh, having a second pair of eyes on some of the decisions that are made, again, that can improve the robustness of the system. And third, uh, having a system that is uh, well understood by everyone bringing everything kind of under the same umbrella and with the same level of of transparency. Okay. In other words, it's something which regulators should like. I think they should like it. Yeah, I think, you know, 
I think that they are cautious and I and I understand the caution because you don't want to increase the riskiness of the system. But I think used properly, this could decrease the riskiness of the system and support the aims of the regulators. Insurance risk and insurable risks fundamentally should be good risks. Exactly, exactly. But actually, I think what, you, what you're saying, which I think is a fascinating point, which is that that additional level of, of insurance provides the extra confidence, which makes it less likely that there'll be a run on the bank or a, a sudden catastrophic failure in confidence for, for a bank or a financial institution. Exactly. Or as as uh, borrowers are now looking to, if you think about the growth of non-bank finance, right, one of the likely uh, occurrences, maybe a tightening up in bank lending in the next in the next couple of years. If that happens, com- companies that want to grow will still need to go get finance, and many of them will have uh, difficulty accessing the non-bank finance markets. And then even the ones that do, you know, one of the reasons they borrow from their local bank is they trust their local bank and they know their local bank. Having a layer of insurance there could provide support. The same thing if you have to invest in funds that are investing over the long term. The fact that those funds are well insured, uh, either the underlying assets or the fund itself is well insured, should give people confidence uh, that 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 these are have been robustly thought through. No, exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, and and that's that's the added role that insurance brings, which is that <laughs> this is this is I'm going to slip into stereotypes now. But you're going to have bankers who are gung ho profit makers. And you have insurers that are the exact opposite. <laughs> and, exactly. actually, and actually, when you combine the two, you will hopefully get something which is profit but sustainable and with a degree of caution behind it. Exactly. So um, you have now been CEO of Housing Cap for about a year, kind of give or take. Um, what's your self-assessment after a year, Mary? Uh, well, look, it's been an absolutely fantastic year. You know, being at a place like Howden where you're well supported to do something different is is phenomenal. And I have an amazing team that really wants to make a difference. And I think that we have a proposition that is that is really hitting a, a, a good space right now. We're getting fantastic feedback from clients um, and, you know, and really great feedback from the markets, again, who are looking to us to help support them with their growth plans and making London a real center of insurance innovation. I mean, it already is, but this is part of like the next journey. And to conclude, Mary, um, if you had 30 seconds to inspire someone to work in insurance, what would you say to them? I think insurance is a place where there are really no limits to what you can achieve. Uh, This is an industry that has been innovative since the 1700s and has nowhere but further innovation to go. We're at an absolute uh, point in time where everything is coming together. We know more about risk than we've ever known. We have a bigger need uh, because those risks are being amplified by current uh, issues in the economy. Plus, as my brother told me, it is secretly the most interesting and well-paid financial services profession. (laughs) thank you mary that was wonderful thank you so much for your time rpc radio thank you so much for listening to insurance covered which is an rpc production made possible by joe burgess and mary mitchell if you enjoyed this podcast you will also love our other podcasts taxing matters and money covered plus the fix which is co-hosted by my colleague kelly thompson If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. 
Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.